Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the game podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and we thank you for joining us. Now, in the studio with us today, it's a privilege to have Mr. Matthew Syed. You've got to try and say privilege with more sincerity. There's kind of a large <laughs> chunk of irony dripping off that word. And down the line, somebody who's several notches up from oh, you. Harsh, harsh. It's a genuine privilege. Is that better? Yeah. Right. To have us joined by the excellent Henry Winter. Hi, guys. I'm privileged to be on. Oh, you can see he's delighted. This is awesome. This is awesome. I am so stoked, Matt. Later on, we'll be discussing another difficult night at Old Trafford. More Mourinho. What do you expect? But he brings it upon himself. And controversial plans from FIFA and counter plans from UEFA for a new Club World Cup. It's not as boring as it sounds. Trust me. But we start in Eindhoven, where Tottenham's Champions League hopes hang by a thread as Maurizio Pochettino's men were pegged back by PSV. It finished 2 all, leaving Tottenham five points adrift of Inter Milan in second and eight points away from Barcelona, who were top of Group B. Now, Spurs were leading 2-1 before their goalkeeper Hugo Lloris was sent off for a wild challenge on uh, Herving no, no, Lozano. No, no, no. So, oh, Call don't him mind. Chucky. Chucky. He goes, because like, he looks like Chucky, as in like, you know, I'm from like the horror films. Chucky. Uh, Henry, you've been on the goalkeeping trail this week, interviewing Joe Hart and, and Jordan Pickford, two goalkeepers who are arguably at the top of their game right now. But the same, I guess, can't be said of Larice. No, but I mean, he's done this before. He does have this occasionally sort of reckless streak. And I, I agree with all the sort of former referees who were talking about it in the, in the newspapers and online this morning. Just, you know, it, it was crazy what he did. Um, but, you know, we saw it in the World Cup final. We see, saw it slightly earlier in his career. So, look, Lloris is a, clearly a good leader. We've seen that with, uh, with, with his country. But it's, I don't think he's in the top of the range goalkeepers. And you look at the... the goalkeepers in this country now, particularly the foreign ones, there's an outstanding collection of keepers. And you wouldn't put Loris in the top three if you look at Edison and De Gea in, in, in particular, Allison. You know, So, uh, no, it's something that Spurs are going to have to look at long term. I'm not sure you put him in the top five in the Premier League, frankly, because, you know, you can make a, you can make a strong case for for Jordan Pickford as well. You can make a, you know, he's only young. You can make, a, I think, a strong case for, for, for Kepa as well. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure there's there's one or two others. What strikes me, Henry, is keeping goal, especially in the modern game, and the way we judge goalkeepers, I think a lot of it is influenced by two things that we don't often think about. One is obviously the, the style of the team that they play for. Obviously, as we saw that with, with Peter Cech. Some goalkeepers, because of the way their team plays, have to play out from the back, or a lot of times they have to act as sweepers. And it's also influenced, I think, tremendously by um, whether you play for a big club or not, in the sense that if your team, you know, if you play for Manchester City and you've got 70% of the ball, you're not as involved mentally, and maybe you need to make the 
make the leap to concentrate uh, a little bit more or concentrate a little bit differently. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good point. The, the, you know, the mental strength and the decision-making, two sort of separate sides of the uh, of, of the mind, become absolute key for goalkeepers. And it's interesting talking to Pickford. I mean, he's such a sort of solid, grounded individual who is strong mentally, doesn't dwell on, on mistakes. He, he sort of laughed when I said, do you work with a psychologist? He said, listen, I, I don't need that. But more and more goalkeepers are. So look, there are two sides to it, their relationship with the goalkeeper and the relationship with the uh, sports psychologist. Joe Hart. I like, I like Jordan Pickford even more now. <laughs> He's great, Pickford. Honestly, I mean, if you go and talk to him, you can talk much about rave music in the Northeast as, as much as goalkeeping. But I do quite like that. It was a trait that David Seaman had. That if he made a mistake, he could box it off and he would focus simply on the here and now and then maybe sort of focus and go through sort of clips of the mistake later on. I think Pickford's like that as well. That's why he's been so good for England. But absolutely that, you know, what goalkeepers are expected to do now, the, the, the sweeper-keeper element, as well as the, the distribution. Decision-making is just under far more scrutiny um, than before, particularly if defences are pushing up, pressing into midfield. There is that gap there. Look, Manuel Neuer you know, was just the exemplar of how to, to how to deal with that and timing his, his runs to intercept. And, and Loris just got caught out again. So, uh, look, whether he needs to work with a psychologist, whether he needs to work with Spurs, goalkeeping coach, I'm going down to the training ground tomorrow, so I might find out a little bit more then. But, look, these guys are such experts. They're surrounded by so many good people around them. It's not like the old days where they would just sort of turn up. And, you know, I can remember when... Seaman got beaten by Naeem from the halfway line. He turned up to training at Arsenal the, the, the next day and all the players had put balls along the halfway line just to sort of say, actually, let's make a joke about this um, and move on with it. It's far more detailed now. It's far, you know, Loris will go in with his goalkeeping coach and, and work on this. But, you know, he does need work on it because he's got previous in these ill-judged um, moves outside the box. Matthew, Larice made a big mistake off the field by a drink driving. Do you think that is affecting his performance uh, as well? Is he perhaps trying too hard to impress? Uh, it may be. I mean, I certainly think goalkeepers are in something of an invidious position. They very rarely uh, get shortlisted for the big awards. I think the only one who's ever got shortlisted for the World Player of the Year, the Ballon d'Or, is Lev Yashin and nobody else. Or oh, I think no one else has won it. So the other thing, and picking up on Gab and Henry, is that the mistakes are very salient. You make an error, everybody talks about it. People don't talk about good goalkeeping when it's about fantastic positioning that forces a striker to shoot wide. That doesn't get onto the highlights reel. Um, My father-in-law talks regularly about Peter Bonetti. Fantastic goalkeeper. The cat. The cat. (laughs) But it's about a very bad World Cup that he had. And I think unless... As Henry said, unless you can compartmentalise the errors and not allow it to impact on decision-making that happens under incredible pressure. I mean, Loris would have made the decision to run out in 100 milliseconds. It's a very, very quick decision. And those judgments, I think, are affected by emotion. I mean, that's a clear finding from neuroscience, is that emotions radically shape the decisions we make. And if he's made a highly salient error off the pitch. One can imagine how that will affect his emotions and by implication uh, corrode that rapid decision-making. You know, you made the point about why they don't get shortlisted for awards and 
you know, why goalkeepers generally tend to fetch. I, get either. I mean, you know, look, you know, I'm going to vote on one of these awards and without going into specifics, it tends to, unless you go back to Cannavara in 2006, it does tend to be the, uh, you know, the, the strikers, the goal scorers, the creators who get it. So it's not purely goalkeepers. It's the back five that, but, that uh, tend to get ignored. But but, but I think the, the, the point I was going to make about goalkeepers and, and this might be slightly counterintuitive is that, again, especially on big clubs, goalkeepers don't actually do that much relative to other players on the pitch. If you take aside for one minute the distribution, which is becoming increasingly important at certain clubs, I'm not going to debate that. But also, you know, it's not like they're asked to go and thread the needle all the time. You know, it's something that, especially a modern goalkeeper who's, who's come through the ranks in the last decade or so, pretty much all of them can do it to, to a decent level. But the main thing that they're judged on is whether they make saves. Um, you mentioned their positioning, and sometimes the positioning is so good that the shot goes wide. That happens occasionally. But we can actually go and, and kind of isolate and identify that part of goalkeeping much more than we can with, with other players on, on the pitch. And you realize that over the course of a game, the average goalkeeper for, for a big club might face five to eight shots of which maybe three or four are going to be on, tra- on target. I'm thinking very loose averages here. Of those three and four shots that are on target, there will invariably be maybe two that are very easy to save. There will be one which will be virtually impossible to save. And then there might be one, I'm speaking very loosely here, and maybe the percentages are even lower, one where a great keeper might save it and a good keeper, an average keeper, will not save it. So the amount of times that they're being judged, and obviously they're judged on other things, the, the Lloris situation, obviously he's judged on that too, which wasn't a save, although he would have had to make a save if Lozano had gone through. But it's such a tiny, tiny, tiny sample. Right? Over a 38-game Premier League season, you're judging on maybe 60, 65 incidents where they really could have made a difference one way or another. I think I disagree with that. And it goes to the point that Henry made about not just goalkeepers not getting on the short list, but defenders and defensive midfielders. And I think the reason is what you might call the highlights bias. You see the goals of the great strikers. You see the interplay of the forward midfielders. But what doesn't get onto the highlights is... Kante standing in the right position to prevent a forward pass. You don't see Peter Shilton, who, by the way, said his greatest ever game was one where he didn't make a save. His positioning was so good and his positioning encouraged the defenders so much that he didn't have to do anything that would have appeared salient to somebody looking from the outside in. So I think I think goalkeepers are far more significant than those few moments in a game where they either don't or do make a save. And don't you think, Matthew, on the, on, on the back of that, that's actually now being reflected with, with Pep sort of saying goalkeeper yeah, is yeah. The sort of, you know, the, yeah. almost the first line of attack. Right. And you look at the fees. I mean, this, the, you know, everyone talks about Neymar-nomics and, and, and what strikers go for. But the real rock stars, in a way, mm. recently, in terms of the transfer windows, has, has been goalkeepers who go mm. for sort of 65, 70 yeah. million. Yeah. Pickford went for 30 million. He's probably doubled that now after the World Cup. But it's interesting when you talk to fans. I mean, I've been doing a little bit of work on for background on, on Manchester City and Joe Hart's time there and... When he went to the training ground when it was last week at CFA and they've 
unveiled this training ground. They've named it after him, which is a nice touch and, and much appreciated. The picture they showed was one that the media would associate with, with Joe Hart. All emotion, just sprinting around, celebrating wildly, almost like a fan, uh, Sergio Aguero's goal to, to, to win the title. Was actually, if you talk to a lot of Manchester City fans, they'll say, well, actually, our, our memory, it was great that he celebrated like a fan and the point about the passion is, you know, is important. But actually, what we remember is a week four key game against Everton when Joe Hart made a save against Naismith. And that was probably forgotten in the grand scheme of things, but that was absolutely a key moment in terms of building towards the title. The other day when, when Burnley played against Bournemouth and they won 4-0, at 2-0 up, you know, sensitive times, as everyone says, um, Joe Hart pulled off a great save against David Brooks, a very exciting kid that Bournemouth have, have taken from Sheffield United. And you talk to the people around Burnley, the goalkeeper coach, Sean Dyche, and they say that was an absolute key thing. Again, coming back to Matthew's central point, that actually they want the goalkeepers are bonkers because actually the, the most important things they do are often slightly overlooked. And we focus on, say, in Joe Hart's case, yeah. the fact that he got caught out by um, by Perlo and he was maybe over-emotional in, in, in the Euros. And so I, I do understand why they are under scrutiny but I also understand now and I think Pep deserves great credit for this because he said listen goalkeepers are important not simply for the saves but for everything else they do for setting the tone and that's why they're going for 60-70 million and coming back to the um, the central point Lloris doesn't deserve to be in that bracket This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Now, every Thursday at thetimes.co.uk, our stats guru, Bill Edgar, provides 11 trivia teasers for you. And here is one for you on this podcast. You've got to pay attention to this one as well. Now, in only one of Tottenham's past 50 games have they failed to score. And in only one of Liverpool's past 46 home games have they lost while conceding more than twice. Does that make sense? I hope, I hope everyone's with us on this one. Which current championship team was responsible in both cases? You're having to reread this one, aren't you, Gav? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I get it. I'm, I'm sort of imagining that... The past 46 home games is basically the last, you know, throwing cup games. You're basically talking the last year and a bit, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe like going say. back to the start of last season. Again, you don't have long to wait to find out. Stick around until the end of the podcast to find out the answer. We're going to move on to Old Trafford, where Manchester United were beaten at home by Juventus in the Champions League on Tuesday. Paolo Dybala with the only goal. Uh, Henry, you were there. Uh, you described United as toothless. It may have only been 1-0, but Juventus were a class apart, weren't they? Well, they were from back to front, um, particularly the two centre-halves. I thought it was just a, a joy to watch. I was talking to uh, an academy coach and he'd just been over to... Uh, to Juventus and just watched their their young defenders um, training, sort of 13, 14-year-olds, and he said they were just drilled in the art of leaning into centre-forwards, corners and free kicks, what we would call the sort of dark arts, and most people were called sort of grown-up defending, and Benucci and Cellini were just were, were outstanding. I thought that the, 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 the right full-back um, I've not seen much of him before, but I thought I thought he was just fantastic. Joe Cancelo, what a what a player! 
I mean, Gab, you'll have seen a lot of him, but that was the first time I've seen him live. And just to see his movement in the in flesh and the energy, I thought he was terrific. Dybala's movement. I mean, everyone's talking about Juventus's midfield. I thought Dybala's movement, it just completely confused Manchester United's defence. I know it's United's defence at the moment. It's not particularly difficult to confuse them. They can't even turn up to a game on time. But actually, <laughs> he's, he's, his movement, I thought, was, was exceptional. What I like about him is that, you know, he walked in, he thought, great stadium, big support, and I absolutely belong here. And I thought he was he was outstanding. But look, Manchester United were poor. I mean, I've spent, what, 20 years um, covering Ferguson teams who would absolutely fly out the traps on a on a big European night on most nights and just show respect for the opposition, but certainly no fear. But there's a timidity, let alone the toothlessness in, in Manchester United at the moment, whether that's the players, whether that's Mourinho, I think it's a combination of the two, whether it's the whole leadership structure at, at Manchester United. Um, you know, there's so many problems there, but it was, it's, you know, they've got good players, Manchester United, but they were they're just inhibited. And it's just, it's just sad to say, I walked out of the ground um, about sort of 11.30 at night with the Manchester United official. And, you know, we're obviously talking off the record. And I'm just saying, look, it's sad. To see, I'm not a Manchester United fan, but I just think it's sad just to see them like that. You know, the, the, the caged tiger, Mourinho's got to let them loose yep. because it is, you know, we've seen what Rashford's done recently with, with England against Spain and Costa Rica, you know, before the before the World Cup, slightly different level of opposition. But, you know, just let let them breathe. It's interesting because Mourinho might come back to that. Well, first of all, he might come back and say that United deserved more and they controlled the game in the second half and they deserved a draw, which is an assessment I'm assuming you disagree with and so to do, do most people I think but the lineup he put out it's a lineup filled with attacking players and, and I think it's it's a lineup that I thought could have done well I, I totally saw the logic you get Mata to go and, and, and press Pjanic and then you know that that puts pressure on Bentancourt and he turned out to be, play really well but then you, you wouldn't have known that at the time and, and you've got the two flying wingers who you know you've had very attacking fullbacks uh, those two guys, you can you you can pin down uh, their fullbacks and or, or get behind them, but you have to go and actually not sit deep if you're going to play that way. Did Mourinho tell them to sit like this? I just wish he'd uh, give his half-time team talks before the first half because you know, we saw it at Chelsea at the weekend. They were a bit more assertive there, a bit more assertive against Juventus in the second half. But look, in, individually, the quality of the players, they've got a good coach who's coached them and made them better. They've got masters at central defence, which is their bedrock. When you look at Manchester United teams down the years, you know, Palace and Bruce, um, Vidic and Ferdinand, you can go further back to, to, to the Busby teams. They always had outstanding central defensive pairings and Manchester United simply don't have that at the moment and they are being kept in games and competitions by the brilliance of David De Gea and that is going to run out at some point so you know it was I completely agree with you but you know I don't think people were particularly surprised even when they saw an attacking lineup they knew that they wouldn't be an attacking mentality I mean I think there's something very interesting about the concept of error Mourinho I think is a manager wants his teams to be well-organised, well-drilled, and therefore to cut down on defensive errors. Defensive errors can be catastrophic because, as we were talking about in the case of the goalkeepers, you concede a goal. So you want to cut them out. So it's a bit like trying to manufacture a car. You have to have every component of the right size and dimensions, otherwise the car won't work. You just need one component out of place and it all breaks down. So you want to squeeze out the errors, you want to squeeze out the variations. So they're very well-drilled and you... 
see interviews with any player who's played under Mourinho, the drilling is intense, it's focused and it's highly rigorous. However, getting to the point, when you're trying to attack and you're trying to break down a defence, there needs to be some element of spontaneity, of creativity. Because if the patterns are too predictable, if the opposing team knows the kinds of patterns that you're going to deploy, they can easily create a defensive structure that mitigates it. Therefore, you have to have people running into space, doing things that is unpredictable to the opponent. But if you're doing that, if you're being creative, if you're being innovative, you have to make mistakes. In the second half against Newcastle, it hit me very, very hard. They scored three goals. They made dozens of mistakes in the final third of the pitch. They missed chances, people ran into space, the ball didn't get to them, but they also scored a lot of goals. I think Mourinho's fundamental problem as a manager is he's trying to cut down on mistakes in the attacking phase. That works in the defensive phase. In the attacking phase, what it means is, to pick up on Henry, it makes you toothless. It means that you're tepid. It means that the players feel that the hand breaks on. And there's nothing contradictory at all between having a low tolerance of error in the defence and a higher, not high, but higher tolerance of error in the attack. They've played much better in second halves, right? The last three games. Yeah, Mourinho made that point. Precisely because, you know, if you're 2-0 down, you have to fear, risk. fear disappears yeah. and suddenly you start taking risks. And that is when United have started playing better. And, you know, I think this is an insight one hopes Mourinho will grasp. Well, Bill Edgar tweeted that English teams at the halfway point of uh, the Champions League group stage last season were unbeaten. And remember, of course, there were five of them in the group stage. This season, with only four teams in action, English clubs have already suffered five defeats in the Champions League. Each team has been beaten at least once. Uh, Henry, what does that tell us then? <laughs> My thoughts, we got a bit too carried away, uh, overexcited last season. I think the general trend over the last 15 years has been... You know, the quality of the Spanish teams, one or two German teams, the Italian teams seem to be coming back into it. Now, I think it also reflects the intelligence required in European football, which still in the Premier League is is often second to attack, attack, attack and passion and going for it rather than a slightly more cerebral approach. So I still think they're getting caught out. I mean, you know, Liverpool did get to, to the final last season was I saw Liverpool last night and I actually think they're a more rounded team I think the defence is, is better you know they're, they're doing well they're top of a group which which looked a difficult group when it was drawn and they're, and they're looking well set for the uh, you know for the knockout stages so it was exciting last season but I think that, you know the experience of English clubs in Europe I don't think people were necessarily getting too carried away and it was good to see Liverpool get to the final but look this season maybe it's a uh, a drop-off after the World Cup. You could argue maybe in, in, in Tottenham's case that they're one or two players who are still feeling the, the after-effects of the summer. But, you know, that's, that's affected all top clubs. There's four English clubs. You don't have to say which ones. How many will be in the knockout round? Well, I think City and Liverpool. I can see them in the semi-finals, depending on the draw. I think they're, you know, they're, they're easily the best two teams in the country, and I can see them getting, getting through that. You can't see Spurs getting through. Just, I, you just and United? Be, well, they were in a bit of a strong position, but now they're this Juventus roadblock and the issues. 50, I wouldn't. You said it's fifty-fifty. I'd say it's it's it looks looks, looks tight. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Now, Martin Ziegler writes for The Times today about plans for a new FIFA Club World Cup. The proposal is for a 2014 tournament played over 18 days and three weekends. Cab, why do FIFA reportedly want to do this? FIFA want to replace the Confederations Cup, which isn't very exciting to a lot of people, doesn't generate much money, with a Club World Cup, inviting like a proper Club World Cup, obviously 24 teams, not like the, the sort of the emasculated version that takes place now. It would be held somewhere in the world, presumably in Asia or in, or in North America, and it would generate a ton of money, which FIFA say would then as with most of FIFA's revenues, if they're no longer the way they were in the previous administration, would then go and be redistributed among all the, um, all the FIFA member nations. UEFA and a number of clubs aren't happy on this about this for essentially two reasons. One is there really haven't been any sort of process in terms of consultation with the clubs, who are the ones who ultimately, of course, pay the players. They put up the risk, uh, if you will. Not much consultation either with the different confederations, specifically UEFA. There's another element, too, that uh, this is somehow encroaching on the Champions League, which is obviously one of the biggest money spinners for uh, for the clubs. And so it's gotten to the point where UEFA have basically indicated, I mean, reportedly, but I'm pretty sure this is accurate, uh, so I've been told, that if this is put to a vote on Friday and it's likely to pass, and looking at the numbers, it probably is likely to pass, they're simply going to walk out. Uh, they've also been in talks with the people who organize the, the ICC, those summer tours in, in, in the U.S. that European clubs participate in, uh, to create a sort of a, a UEFA-branded, beefed-up version of the ICC where they would invite the biggest clubs from, from South America uh, as well, as well as Europe, and effectively create an annual rival competition over the summer. And at that point, clubs would have to decide and... Presumably, since UEFA have very close relationships with the clubs, because the European Clubs Association, which is the body that represents um, the big European clubs, or actually all European clubs, uh, presumably the clubs would side with this sort of rogue tournament. Um, so that's kind of the, the showdown right now between, uh, um, between the two parties. Well, it's a very interesting proposal. I mean, two things strike me about hearing Gab's very good uh, overview there. One is... FIFA getting more money that they can then redistribute to FAs and to other kinds of solidarity programs fills me with a certain level of dread. Um, I remember doing a column last year and looking in some detail at what this money was spent on, and typically it's facilities that aren't used, kickbacks, embezzlement, quid pro quos. And I'm sad to say, like a lot of aid spending that isn't rigorously assessed via randomised controlled trials, this money is completely wasted. It's squandered. And it's a kind of virtue signalling. I don't know if you've ever... You must have been invited on these trips where somebody from the FIFA press office will say, will you come out with us to a particular venue in Africa and we can show you all the amazing things that are happening. And it's basically... It's, it's, it's a kind of media circus that does nothing either for football or to social welfare. Um, and by the way, the money that goes to the FAs, I think the English FA 
has a pretty tight, strong structure and would spend the money pretty well. I don't have much faith in many other FAs around the world not to squander this money. The other thing I'd say is... It, it, just just, just on, on that point, again, undoubtedly that's, for people, undoubtedly that's how Seth Blatter um, built his power over the years. They, they just give out these money by the gold project and not ask many questions. Gold project, yeah. Um, it should be said that the current administration thus far... And, and this is maybe indicative also of the culture of many of these FAs. They have put in these pretty strong requirements in terms of you have to apply for specific grants for specific projects. You can't just say, oh, I need a million dollars to buy a minibus. And then, you know, you see there's like a swimming pool there. Uh, you have to put everything out to public tender. All the public tender has, uh, documents have to be online. Uh, they do all these background checks and the people are going to be administrating it. To the point that one of the side effects, and again, this shows you the culture in the game, is that a lot of the money thus far has gone unclaimed because a lot of FAs are having trouble submitting projects that submit FIFA's criteria because they can't find people who are clean enough or people who are willing to submit to background checks or they're not competent with public tenders mm-hmm. and so on to the point that FIFA's had to hire people to help them to fill out the paperwork. So I, I just want to make this. So I don't know if all of a sudden they can turn into a very clever organization, yeah. mm-hmm. but they are aware of this and they are trying to do that. And these guys, the current administration, of course, have only been in charge for just under two years. But this does yeah. happen, by the way, in, in large bureaucratic oh, organizations that try and distribute aid. It basically becomes a gravy chain to the bureaucrats. The governing body that formerly has control FIFA. It's a non-profit making institution um, made up of constituent FAs and with continental governing bodies. But the power over the course of football's history has increasingly gone out to the clubs, the vast majority of which, certainly in, in the UK, are private entities and formerly profit making institutions. And there's no doubt at all that the American entrepreneurs and capitalists who have come into the Premier League see their assets as opportunities to accrue wealth. And their main assets within the club are the players. And they think of it in these terms, we need to optimise those assets to maximise our return, both in terms of profitability, but also growing the asset value of the equity. And I have no doubt at all that the Glazers have said in terms that they would like to see a European Super League, because they think that is a way of maximising the returns on the players that they have and that it doesn't really pay them very much to have their players playing against a lowly ranked team in the Premier League when they could be playing regularly against Barcelona and Real Madrid. So if he, the, 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 this is one tiny aspect of a much broader story which hasn't yet resolved itself and I think will increasingly demonstrate its internal contradiction. I spoke to a guy who was an executive at a top European club for a very long time, involved the European Clubs Association, really very much in the midst of all this, the stakeholders. And he said, you know, what's interesting is we're talking in terms of television rights to broadcast ma- matches and commercial rights for, for branding around matches. But in some ways, that's not where the future is because people under the age of 30 don't watch much football. They certainly watch a lot less football. And it's an old man's game. And I think they're still interested in the footballers, but they're almost more interested in the brands, in the cacophony that goes around it, in the Instagram accounts, what Paul Pogba had for breakfast. And that's going to be more valuable. 
And I don't see how that's something that FIFA or UEFA, maybe even the clubs, can control going forward. So you throw, chuck it forward 30, 40 years, it could be like basically like, I don't know, like Paris Fashion Week. You know, all the big brands together showing off, generating money without a central control and the sporting element really becoming secondary. Oh, no, I don't think that will happen. That, 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 I don't think Some that can happen because, no, because, because, I mean, no, because the absolute central appeal of sport and I think why it's grown. I mean, people didn't see sport growing over the last hundred years. They thought that it would decline with all these other interesting cultural trends coming in. But sport is because of competition, because there is a way of objectively measuring the worth of different teams, different individuals, different countries. And I think that will remain when sport becomes fashion. You can have a product like the world wrestling, which sort of survives, but sports it's not really sport. sport. No, sport Sport is entertainment precisely because it's competitive and objectively... Well, I, um, I hope you're right. No, but I what, hope you're right. But let me throw this in. Last point. I think there are two very interesting trends in capitalism at the moment. One is that in this vast, globalised world, people want history. They want narrative. They want institutions and traditions that they can make sense of through time. So when you go and watch Brentford, you know that this is a club that has existed for a lot. People have been going to Griffin Park. There's a narrative. There are icons from the past. And it's almost like the next chapter of an unfolding story. It's the same with other teams. This tradition is very important to how we make sense of the world. But if you look at, for example, UFC, it was bought by William Morris and it is now worth, I think, $6 billion. Um, that is new. It's fresh. It's different. It is something that didn't exist 20 years ago. And I think this tension is trying to be resolved by football at the moment. It knows that the Premier League has deep and powerful roots that attracts the traditional fans. But it also knows that it might need to innovate in some way to attract new fans. And I think that tension in creating new sorts of competition, in trying to take clubs and put them into new markets, those things, I think, are also resolving themselves slowly through time. And I don't think that is a tension that's going to abate either. We could have a whole other... A whole other series of podcasts on the future of sport and the future yep. of the future of football. But we don't have time for that today. No, not today. No. What we do have time for is our weekend predictions game. Across the season, we're tied, Gab, you and me, at 4-4. Last weekend was also a draw. So we really are at deadlock. It's quite well, you just heard Matthew about how we need competition and narrative. So after racing out to an easy early lead, this is what you've done. You've deliberately <laughs> allowed me to claw my way back. No, I haven't. I've paid a price for some terrible results and <laughs> lack of knowledge of the um, of the lower leagues. Um, so let's start with Manchester United and Everton. Um, is it going to be yet another Mourinho-inspired? Uh, come back in the second half? <laughs> well, I am I am going for a United win. I'm going to go for a 2-1 win. Whether it's a comeback in the second half, I'm not sure, but that's what I'm going for. It's got to be a comeback. My man, Marco <laughs> Silva, uh, three wins on the bounce. Well. It's all happening. Um, I'm going to say... 1-1. Oh, so that would have been my other choice. But anyhow, let's move on. Uh, to Selhurst Park, Crystal Palace taking on Arsenal. What do you reckon in that one? Well, haven't Arsenal won like 57 games in a yes, row? I mean, we're taping on Thursday um, and it is tricky because they've got Sporting Lisbon yeah. away. So maybe the streak will end. But um, and Palace 
bit of a rough ride mm-hmm. of late. I'm going to say uh, Arsenal to win 2-0. Oh, uh, well, uh, written down, I have gone for Arsenal to win 2-0. Crystal Palace haven't scored at home this season. Southampton and Ooh. Newcastle. Ooh. Now, That's... obviously, Sparky, bit of up and down. Um, Newcastle. Uh, are we going to have more George Culkin misery? <laughs> Do you know what? I, I think this is quite difficult, this one. I've actually ended up going for a 1-1 draw. I just think Newcastle might get something out of it. But it's not a, it's not a tie that I go, ooh, this is fun. Well, at least Newcastle aren't at home where they've uh, obviously uh, regularly lost this season. I'm going to go for a nice, safe, nil-nil draw. Okay. Yeah, that's probably a good shout. Into the championship then. Leeds, who have gone back to the top after their win this week. They're at hosting Nottingham Forest. Obviously, their manager is Aitor Caranca, who was uh, Jose Mourinho's number two at Real Madrid. <laughs> we don't always have to bring up Jose Mourinho. <laughs> but of course we do. Come on now. Come on now. And of course, who also managed uh, Middlesbrough, yes. who... I don't watch them, but I, I know somebody who's a big fan of the championship. And easy puts it, Middlesbrough this season are horrendous to watch, but effective. Is that is that true? Uh, well, uh, without wanting to be so dismissive of Tony Pulis, it's it's a Tony Pulis side. So what can we say? Resolute, hard. Yeah, probably not um, the most glamorous, but they get results. Right. Well, in any case... I'm we're not the, talking about Middlesbrough. No, we're not. I'm on the Bielsa bandwagon. Yeah. Uh, Leeds 3, Forest 0. Ooh. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going for a Leeds 2, Forest 1. What about in the big one in Spain, Gab? The really yeah. big one. This is the first Classico since December 23rd, 2007, without Cristiano Ronaldo okay, or what? Lionel okay. Messi. You know, they've, had, they've played a whole bunch in between. Yes. And I was thinking, the world was a totally different place back then. I mean, I know you were a little girl in 2007, but um, imagine... Tesla hadn't made a single car. Oh, wow. Netflix, they used to send you these things called DVDs, which were these sort of <laughs> round discs. And they used to send it through something called the, the Post. No. Yeah, there was a man who came by your house, right? Donald Trump was getting ready to host the first season of Celebrity Apprentice in the U.S. Really? Where, among his Celebrity Apprentices, was your mate and mine, Lennox Lewis. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? Anyway, uh, that's how far retro we got to go. Real Madrid, obviously, they're having a horrendous season by many standards, and it's been difficult, and Lopetegui's job is very much under threat. And yet, weirdly, they're only four points off the top of the table. Barca are at the top of the table, but they're also having a really, I think they've only kept four clean sheets in 13 games Mm -hmm. since the start of the season. They have trouble defending. Real Madrid have trouble attacking. What do you think, Natalie? Ah, you're putting it back onto me. I've gone for a 2-1 Barca win. There's a strong case for that. I'm going to go in the opposite <laughs> no! direction. Real Madrid to win 3-1. Oh. My man Lopetegui to turn it around. I'll tell you what, if you're right, it's going to turn into an absolutely rotten year for high-profile George Mendes manager clients, with the exception of our friend Nuno. Yes. Um, between Leonardo Jardim, Mourinho, and Lopetegui. Not good at all. Hi there, and welcome to The Sweeper, the Times' fantasy football tip service. I'm Charlie Scott, and I'm joined by Paddy Bear. Hello. So, last week, it was a bit of a damp squib, really. Uh, Difficult. I think if you got 50 points, you were pretty happy, weren't you? Oh, yeah, I would have been streaking. (laughs) 
Yeah, it was tough. I saw um, the Effish Left Field Twitter account tweet someone's team who triple captain Sterling, no points. Oh. Vice captain was Hazard, who's got three points. I think his team managed 12 in total, so uh, oh, it could gosh. have been worse. I mean, that's almost the point where you just quit, <laughs> I think. But this week should be better. Oh, yeah. Partly because of Liverpool, I think. Yeah, they look brilliant against Red Star Belgrade. Is Salah back? I think so. I hope so. I've had him the whole time. Uh, he's straight away my number one captaincy advice. And I think if you uh, have a chance, you're going to want to get at least one, maybe two of Salah, Mane, Firmino in your team. Partly also because they've got Fulham in a couple of weeks' time who look terrible at the back. Yeah, that could be five goals. What else? What caught your eye? We were talking beforehand that it's very much just waiting until the very last minute before making transfers mm-hmm. this week because there are a lot of big names who are doubts. Eden Hazard being the main one. Yeah, absolutely. He's struggling with a back injury. Glenn Murray, who is probably the best budget striker pick at the moment, but he went off with a head injury last week, so he's a doubt for Brighton as well. Anthony Martial, I think he's got 28 points in the past two game weeks. He's only 7.3 million. It would be nice to have a reliable Man United attacker, what do you reckon? Oh, it really would. I mean, I'm not tempted by anything else in that United team, but yeah, Martial. And speaking of reliable attackers, Arsenal, what do you do with that? I think if you've got Lacazette or Aubameyang, don't necessarily go out and buy them because we don't know who's starting and who's not, but if you've got them, keep them. It seems to be working, doesn't it? Yeah, those two look brilliant at the moment, whether it's one of them starting or the other coming off the bench. Aubameyang came off the bench, got two last week. Did he do that the previous week as well? Yeah, something similar. Against Philip. Yeah. Um, yeah, both of them in great form. And I think another possible Arsenal player who might start picking up quite a few points is Alex Awobi, who Arsenal fans are getting very excited about. And he's quite a cheap midfield option. Uh, Unai Emery seems to like him. Excellent. Well, there's plenty more tips coming your way if you just sign up for our free weekly email. It's at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football or just find the link in the podcast description or we've got a Facebook group as well. We have. Just search for The Sweep on Facebook and you can screenshot your teams, ask for Paddy or my attempted help with transfers and whatever you like really and good luck. Just time to give you the answer to Bill Edgar's teaser. We asked you, in only one of Tottenham's past 50 games, have they failed to score? And in only one of Liverpool's past 46 home games, have they lost while conceding more than twice? Which current championship team was responsible in both cases? And if you use the Marcotti method, <laughs> which uh, I outlined before... It was good deduction. You might have got this, because mm. the answer, of course, was West Brom. Yes. And you might recall that last January, they knocked Liverpool out of the FA Cup, uh, winning three goals to two at Anfield. You might not have remembered <laughs> that they also uh, beat Spurs by a goal to nil in May for the simple fact that they were close to being relegated <laughs> at that point. Yeah, that was at the end when they were terrible and that guy came in and won all those games. What happened Darren to him? Moore? Yes. He's still their manager. Oh, is he? Oh, well done, Darren Moore. <laughs> yes. The that big guy. <laughs> the, no, I, I, I remember Darren Moore as a man mountain of a central defender who took over at the end. People thought he was just marking yes. time. No, he Instead, got, he won a whole bunch of games, right? Yeah, yeah, and he got the job. And yeah, manager of the month as he's well. Doing, he's doing well in the championship? He's doing, he's doing very well, apart from uh, when they lost last night to uh, Frank Lampard's derby 4-1. Quite hammering at home. 
That's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to the excellent guests, Matthew Side and Henry Winter. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We're going to be back on Monday after a weekend when Liverpool, Chelsea, or even Arsenal could go top of the table, albeit... Only for a few hours, because, yes. of course, Manchester City plays Spurs on Monday night. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hold up. 